This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I started this podcast now almost seven years ago to extend the walls of my practice to many of you who've already been in therapy and very interested in psychological and mental issues, emotional issues, to those of you who might have just been diagnosed with something and you're looking for answers, and also to a third group of you that might be a little skeptical about the whole mental health treatment thing. And even admitting to someone that you need help, that's a step in and of itself. So listening to a podcast is a real safe way to do that, right? Welcome to all of you. Y'all all know that I've written a book called Perfectly Hidden Depression, where we need to look at perfectionism as it serves as a camouflage for really a lot of inner struggle, despair, loneliness, and even sometimes suicidal thinking. So I was very interested to see a book that's come out talking more about the positive aspects of perfectionism, what I would term constructive perfectionism rather than destructive perfectionism. So there's a new book by Catherine Morgan Schaffler called The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control. And she says, you know, you don't have to stop being a perfectionist to be healthy. She says for women who are sick of being given the generic advice that they just need to find balance, her new approach has arrived. And she's categorized these constructive perfectionists in five ways. Classic, intense, Parisian, messy, or procrastinator. Which one could you be? As you identify your unique perfectionist profile, you'll learn how to manage each form of perfectionism to work for you, not against you. Beyond managing, you'll learn how to embrace and even enjoy your perfectionism. Yes, enjoy. This book is elegantly written. I had to comment at the very beginning of the interview. I think it's one of the best books, at least self-help books, that I've ever read, including my own. So Catherine's book is a love letter to the ambitious, high-achieving, full-of-life clients who have filled the author's private practice and who changed her life. Ultimately, her book will show you how to make the single greatest trade you'll ever make in your life which is to exchange superficial control for real power, is what she says. So I was very interested to talk with Catherine, and we talked a few weeks ago, and that's our episode for today. Catherine Morgan Schaffler. So this episode is sponsored once again by BetterHelp, because when you're ready to ask for help, maybe that will be the venue that you turn to, because it is so easy, affordable for many and very, very conducive to whatever lifestyle you're living. So let's hear from BetterHelp. I recently heard a fascinating reframe for the idea of asking for help. Maybe you view asking for help as something someone does who's falling apart or who isn't strong. So consider this. What if asking for help means that you won't let anything get in your way of solving an issue, finding out an answer, or discovering a better direction. Asking for help is much more about your determination to recognize what needs your attention or what is getting in your way of having the life you want. BetterHelp, the number one online therapy provider, makes reaching out about as easy as it can get. Within 48 hours, you'll have a professional licensed therapist with whom you can text, email, or talk with to guide you. And you're not 
having to comb through therapist websites or drive to appointments. It's convenient, inexpensive, and readily available. Now you can find a therapist that fits your needs with BetterHelp. And if you use the code or link betterhelp.com slash selfwork, you get 10% off your first month of sessions. So just do it. You'll be glad you did. That link again is betterhelp.com slash selfwork to get 10% off your first month of services. And now I want to introduce you to Catherine Morgan Scheffler, the author of The Perfectionist's Guide to Losing Control. Catherine, I, I, I was reading your book, and, and I will tell you that I, I think you're one of the most eloquent writers that I've ever interviewed. Um, and I've interviewed a bunch. So wow, thank you so much. The way you use language, the way you approach ideas and the way you get them across is really, it makes the book not only very compelling, but it's, um, it's just a pleasure to read. It's, it's a, it, the, it's very evocative and, mm-hmm. and I just so enjoyed, um, uh, the way you think and the way you put things. So the process of the book was really good, I thought. Thank you. That is so flattering. I will take that. Thank you so oh, much. Good. So t- tell self-work listeners a little bit about you, who you are, how you get, you know, how you got to be an author, all that kind of thing. Sure. So my name's Catherine Morgan Schaffler. I live in New York City and I'm a psychotherapist. And I I think I always secretly wanted to write, but it was never in the forefront of my mind because I really do love being a therapist and and my private practice was the soul of my work and still is. Um, but I just noticed so many patterns as as I know you have, because I've read your book as well, which is also fantastic. It was hooked on that intro story, which is every therapist's worst nightmare of Natalie and everything. Um, anyway, I digress. Uh, so, you know, when it is your job to listen to the most intimate pieces of someone's life, unfiltered, uncut, and totally honest, that there's something special and sacred about that. And you kind of have your pulse on the zeitgeist in the way that other professions don't necessarily allow. And for me, recognizing patterns across so many clinical settings, across so many de- demographics, culturally, socioeconomically, and in all these kinds of ways, really compelled me to contain it somewhere. Mm-hmm. Hence the book. So I wrote The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power, because oh, I noticed my, oh, universal... That's my, that's my cue to show it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So I, I really noticed universal patterns around perfectionism that we are not talking about in commercial wellness. And not only are we not talking about them, we are talking about perfectionism. Like we fully understand it. Like we know what it is. and you know, it's agreed upon in the research world that we're in the infancy of understanding this construct and that we don't even have a a, a formal clinical definition for so much of this stuff. And that really- Notice you call it an innate natural human tendency is what Mm -hmm. you call the book. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. 
Yeah. You know, I think that it is natural and innate. And natural does not mean immediately healthy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, like anger is also natural. That doesn't mean that anger is always healthy, but it also doesn't mean that it's not, that there aren't wonderful expressions of that impulse within us. And that if we can just harness our natural innate human impulses, instead of trying to eradicate them and get rid of them, which doesn't work, it will never work. I'm glad it will never work because perfectionism is so powerful. Anger is such a powerful tool. All these things that we think are bad, Mm -hmm. they're not bad, they're powerful. Yes, and they can be used in that way. You know, I... Of course, I was thinking about my own writing and, and research and work when I was reading your book, and I really loved the juxtaposition of of what your focus was and what my focus was, which your focus is much more to uh, look at the the beauty of perfectionism and celebrate it in many ways, and and yet also look for when it's becoming something that, you know, like you said, all the five different types have their pros and their cons. There are things that are great about them, and then there's things that are a little more vulnerable about them, whereas my work is more talking about trauma and perfectionism and how that can, how perfectionism can at times, certainly not all the time, um, be a camouflage of some kind, something that someone learns how to do in order to cope with the trauma that they have. So they, mm-hmm. anyway, enough about that. But I, I, I so enjoyed looking at this other side of it. And how did you come up with the five different categories? I mean, is that something just observation, clinical observation? Yes. Well, first, let me say, I really resonate with what you just said, because my first job in this profession was working um, in residential treatment with kids in LA who had been severely abused and neglected so much so that they were no longer even in foster care because their family of origin had in some way not been fit to parent. And then they were abused and neglected in foster care. And then they became what was called wards of the state. Yes. And I saw so much perfectionism, maladaptive perfectionism of just shape-shifting, of being around an adult and immediately trying to assess, okay, who do they want me to be? Who does this grown-up want me to be? How do I how do I best be whatever they need me to be right in this moment to stay safe? Yeah, it's like a supervisor told me once, if you go into someone's home or you meet a family, always pay attention to the child that is quiet in the corner. <laughs> yeah, I put that in my book too. I had I had similar advice from my supervisor who said really specifically pay attention to the children who are behaving perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that's a common adage in training and therapy because you know kids have natural frenetic energy so often and they're a little bit all over the place and and that's a good thing. But when they are trying to manage so much, they um, you know, fade themselves out. But to return to your original question, I came up with the five types because I was really trying to understand a phenomenon that I was noticing, which was, you know, I I worked on site at Google. I had a private practice on Wall Street. I worked in a rehab in Brooklyn in all these busy. different <laughs> all these really different busy. settings. <laughs> and 
I was able to take a client from my rehab and a client from my private practice on Wall Street and on and see that they were both going to respond similarly to a certain situation. And those kinds of things started happening all the time. And I'm like, what is the tie that binds this? And I thought for a moment, like, is it attachment theory? Is it this? Is it what is happening? And how come I can predict um, with reasonable reliability how people are going to respond to certain, you know, stimulus? And that's where the five types came from. I said, oh, it's perfectionism that is manifesting here and it manifests in a patterned way. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, just to let the listeners know, the five types are classic procrastinator, uh, messy, intense, and Parisian. Uh, and having lived in Paris for a little while, I thought that one was very interesting. Oh, <laughs> I think the French would love that they were some type of <laughs> perfectionism. Well, you know, I uh, I came up with that title because you know the the beauty aesthetic for French women is so so understated and simple in the sense that like simplicity is the greatest form of sophistication. Like it's very much signaling a a subtext of I'm not trying too hard. And the Parisian perfectionist really is embarrassed about other people knowing how much they care about something, you know? And so they want to be a little bit effortlessly cool. I'm not trying too hard. I don't care if you like me or not. Meanwhile, they care a lot. And as I talk about in the book, that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to prioritize connection and relationships and understand the power of those connections that you have. And that is um, what Parisian perfectionists do. Every perfectionist is chasing an ideal. Mm -hmm. And we think of perfectionism in a one-dimensional way as in behavioral perfectionism. So I want everything to be organized and in its place. Um, when actually perfectionism is kaleidoscopic. And so perfectionism can show up interpersonally. I want to be perfectly liked by you or perfectly understood, or I want to be the perfect mother, the perfect whatever. And that doesn't look like I want to act and say the perfect things. It's so much more nuanced. That's why I love this subject because the person is holding in their mind a pie chart of what the perfect mother, let's say, behaves like, right? It's not that she never screams. It's that when she loses her cool, it's only to a certain amount. And then she's immediately able to make successful repair attempts. And she's continually, you know, improving and getting better. And, you know, she's, and so when we think of perfect, we think of happy all the time or never making a mistake, but perfectionism is actually very individualized. Mm-hmm. And it's based on the own person's sense of what is, you know, this shows up. Another example of emotional perfectionism showing up is like, what is the perfect way to feel when you bump into an X? Right. So it's like, I want to feel 5% nostalgic, 20% just indifferent and I don't care. And like 50% confident, empowered. And, you know, I want to forget about it 10 minutes later. And so, you know, that's where we get to the nuance of perfectionism 
is those, those little pie charts that we walk around with in our minds. I, th- I think that's great. And, and I'm not sure what I would do if I had my head. I, I don't think it would be perfect, whatever it was. We don't want to find out. We don't need to find out, right? <laughs> that can remain a mystery for us all. It seems more targeted or focused on women. You talk a lot about misogyny, and I totally agree with you. Um, and and yet, how would men be... Uh, where are men in, in this? Um, oh, you know, you're the first person to ask me that question, and I've done so many podcasts. Thank you for asking that, because this is something I want to talk more about. Unfortunately, like everything can't fit in a book, but perfectionism in men, typically, and I, you know, this is like a heteronormative version of perfectionism in men, typically shows up in like the perfect response for a man is to be strong, to not cry, to know what to do, and to be able to pretty immediately execute on those actions, right? So there's no allowance for inaction. There's no allowance for more feminine qualities of, you know, I need comfort. I need guidance. I need counsel. I need love. I need all the things that men need, but feel unable to either access or ask for, or even recognize in themselves that they need because we've so polarized what it means to be a man and a woman in this, in this ridiculous way that we all know intellectually. But when we're in that position of, of feeling in need, you know, it's hard to be able to operate with a broadened perspective on all that stuff. I was talking to one of my own clients yesterday about asking for help, and I quoted your quote. Mm. <laughs> you said, asking for help is refusal to give up. And that's yeah. how you frame it. I loved that. So anyway, again, there are lots of little, or not so little, uh, just very noteworthy and rememberable. Is that a word? Rememberable? <laughs> uh, things, uh, things, quotes in your book. Um, well, I'm glad that we're including men because people have asked me that question too. And in, in what I've noticed and um, I, I certainly have men, many men come to mind that I've worked with that right. fit into this rubric. So really- I mean, I'm sure you've noticed the difference between what happens when men cry in front of you in a session, for example, right? I mean, it's always vulnerable when clients go there, there meaning like a very emotionally live wire place. When men do it, there there is like a palpable sense of shame in the room, you know, of like, oh, I am really out of control right now. I am really losing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I uh, I love to say to folks, I think tears are about intensity, not weakness. Mm. Mm. So, I like that reframe. Believe. Um, so, one of the things that I appreciated so much about your book is that you spend several chapters uh, on w- what you can do about it. Is what I say on self work all the time. What can you do about it? Yeah. And I want to get there, but before I do, I think there were um, really in this kind of sense of celebrating, but also trying to understand what the underbelly of perfectionism is. You you said there are two guiding questions, 
Mm-hmm. How am I striving and why am I striving? Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So, you know, mental health and being healthy is not like a coordinate that you just plant your flag in and say, I've arrived, I'm healthy now. And healthy versions of perfectionism and unhealthy versions, like everybody always wants to know, am I a healthy perfectionist or not? And I'm like, let me kill the suspense. You're both, I'm both, anyone who's a perfectionist is both. Mm-hmm. And so I encourage people to think of it on a spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. And so in, instead of a categorical model of I am or am not, the questions of how and why help you really be a little more thoughtful about your level of awareness. So it's the how am again. It's that yeah, again, right? Exactly. Exactly. And so the how is like, how am I striving? Am I striving in a way that is hurting me, that is burning me out, that is exploiting people around me, that is, you know, costing me something that I value, my integrity, you know, my health, my relationships with my family, whatever it is. That's unhealthy perfectionism, maladaptive perfectionism. Conversely, am I striving in a way that makes me feel like more of myself, that helps me to feel alive, that increases my curiosity, that really energizes me and also, you know, tires me out because this is work, you know, but it tires me out in a way that feels satisfying, right? That's healthy, adaptive perfectionism. And the why am I striving is like, why am I trying to pursue the thing that I am in pursuit of? Is it because I think achieving that thing is going to enable me to then feel a certain way that once I once I get my doctorate, then I can feel smart or know that I'm smart? Or once I get married, then I can feel like a grown-up or lovable or legit or you know, is it going to certify my belonging in some way? Are you trying to get a ticket of admission into some club? Mm-hmm. Or that's 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 unhealthy perfectionism. Or um, am I striving because it feels so good in the most in the deepest way to find a pursuit worthy of a lifetime of striving? Right, and it's a process. It's a yeah. you're enjoying the whole nine yards from A to Z. I mean, you may be tired when you get to Z, but it's something that is, like you say, is feeding you at the same time that you're that you're um, putting out that kind of energy and determination. Yes. Thank you. That's a great point. There's a level of reciprocation of energy. Whereas when it's maladaptive and unhealthy, it feels like just hemorrhaging energy, just like, mm-hmm. you know, such a cost. And so this most simple example is when people try to look their best, Right. Healthy perfectionists might want to, some perfectionists don't really care about the way that they present, but uh, if you're in a healthy place and you do care about the way that you present, you might decide to present you know, as your best, to look your best, because you feel your best on the inside and you want to animate that and celebrate that and share that and let people know that. Whereas if you're in a maladaptive space, you do the exact same behavior right? You're looking your best, but you're doing that because you already feel like you're at such a deficit and you already feel unworthy. So the thinking is, I better look my best because I'm already coming to this meeting, this marriage, this whatever it is from a place of lack. And so I need to compensate for that somehow. So I'm going to you know, try to compensate by looking my best. So it's Gordon very... Gordon Flynn. Yeah. 
I mean, it's what you're talking about in your book of it's hidden. Only you know. Mm-hmm. Only you know whether you're focused on looking your best because you know you truly feel that inside and you want to animate that mm-hmm. or because you feel a void inside and you want to try to fill that. I love that term animate. I think that is very um because it does feel as if you're Disney-fying your life <laughs> in some ways because you want to, you're trying to, you know, Gordon Flett says, the better I do, the better I must do. And so it's just this mm. constant cycle of, of, um, of animating that, you know, um, that way you want to seem. Yeah. 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 Indestructive perfectionism. Right. I, I love those two questions. Um, help me understand because I, I got puzzled a little bit about you talk about balance in a negative way mm-hmm. and i i understood it in many ways it's you you know you can't have it all you, you just you know that's just not going to happen but you you talk about it, balance is actually an energetic equilibrium there's another one of those phrases that i loved and because you become you become being good at being busy so can you um, sure yeah so a little bit for us yeah balance is a wonderful pursuit in its original definition which is energetic equilibrium mm-hmm. right balance in its yeah you know original say, form right. is right. about how you feel on the inside right balance as we talk about it in commercial wellness has become a, about being good at being busy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we've really lost the inside of what balance means and we're operating with a shell casing. Yeah. And excellent point. Yeah. And so, you know, the people that are genuinely have found the sweet spot of their energetic equilibrium on the outside, they look like the opposite of balanced, you know, they're not, able to juggle any task you throw at them and and they're not you know perfectly moving through their day with all of the you know it's not about that and so it, it, that section was about the implicit sort of wild goose chase that we spend women on which is you know what you know what your problem is you're not balanced enough yeah. let me help you to be balanced do this, say this mantra in the morning and buy this like Instapot so that you can make quinoa <laughs> and, you know, um, get this app that's going to help you to learn French because balanced people are really cultured and travel enough and all this stuff. And it's like it just becomes another uh, another achievement. You must but now I must achieve balance. Yeah. And, you know, I talk about it in the book, like when we were all young girls, we were told that the story that a prince was going to come and rescue us, right? And that if we just make the most out of being trapped or kidnapped or, you know, being an orphan or whatever travesty that we're in and do what is good and virtuous, then one day the prince will come and save us and we will live, as the story goes, happily ever after. And now as adult women, we are being sold that same exact story. And the prince has been replaced by this idea of balance that is so superficial. It's not real and it never arrives. 
it's like balance is always, oh, after the holidays, I'll I'll find balance. Oh, this is such a stressful week at work. I can't wait till Saturday. I'm gonna, you know what? I'm gonna have get level set on Saturday. And then it's always in the future and it never comes. And and we don't notice that it never comes because as women, we are too busy blaming ourselves for its delay. And it is not our fault. The reason that we never come, that it never comes, is because this fake notion of balance is not real. It's just an idea. It's not real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really intriguing thought. And um, I, I think it it certainly, um, I'm glad you said it and brought it up in the conversation in your book, because I, I think it's, it's something that maybe people, as you say, have swallowed a, um, this, com- I used the term commercial a few minutes ago, this commercial version of balance. And, you know, you, you see people meditating on commercials and, um, you know, making sure they take their, you know, all their medicine because another mm-hmm. medicine is going to fix that, right? So, medicine and yoga pants, the right outfit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and a quick vodka martini, perhaps. Oh, that too, sure. You said there are t- 10 changes in thinking that you can have and then 10 changes in your behaviors. Um, so I, w- I would love for you to just pick one of those, maybe that you don't get to talk about very much. Mm-hmm. I just wrote a few of them down. Counterfactual thinking, maintenance, and is triumph, difficulty versus challenge. Um, and what? I can't read my own handwriting. The getting connected, simple isn't easy, which I loved that one. Mm. Um, and then some of the behaviors are restoration, reframe, explain and express, do less than do more. Those are just a few that I wrote down. But what do you not get to talk about that you'd um, like to talk about? Oh, thank you for that. So I think strike when the iron is cold is one of my favorite strategies. Uh, it's a phrase that comes from the Dr. Irvin Yalom, who is, you know, a celebrated psychologist and writer. And the idea here is that the best time to address a conflict or something that is really challenging to you is not when the iron is hot. It's not in the moment that you're in the conflict. Right. It's when the conflict and you have some distance between mm-hmm. themselves. So the strategy that, you know, the way I applied it in the book is like the best time to work on your maladaptive perfectionism is when it's not showing up yes. for you. It's yeah. when you're in a great space because when you're in a healthy space, that's when you feel most solutions oriented. That's when you feel confident enough to ask for help. That's when you feel, you know, that you have the most energy to maybe set or adjust a routine such that you are able to encounter, you know, your deepest self every day or your goals or whatever it is that you, you know, if you're anything like me, can lose sight of really easily. You know, I have to remind myself of like my basic values every day just because otherwise we get so distracted. And so striking when the iron is is cold applied outside of managing perfectionism might look like, let's say you and your partner have a real hot button issue going on. The time to talk about that is when you are feeling very connected to that person. And when, when you and that person are laughing, you're having a good time, you feel safe together. And that's when you want to say, listen, I, 
I've been thinking about something that I'd like to have a conversation about. It's important to me. Do you have time mm-hmm. um, and energy to listen to that right now? Or are you up for that right now? Mm-hmm. And the person will probably be able to receive that versus, you know, let's just say for argument's sake, the the issue is um, what, you know, one person comes home late and they don't say that they're coming home late and the other person feels dismissed and disrespected and blah, blah, blah. Okay. So striking when the iron is hot would look like noticing it's seven o'clock. My partner said they would be home at, at 645. Oh, 15 minutes. You're building resentment. You're pissed. You're, you know, you're just having an argument in your head and then seven twelve rolls by and your partner comes home And you're just like, why didn't you tell me? We have talked about this. I want to talk about this right now. You either respect me or you don't. And and you just engage in this very unproductive back and forth, which creates immediate defensiveness. Nobody feels really safe. Nobody feels open. There's there's such a tiny, if not invisible, or or not even invisible, but just like doesn't exist uh, opportunity for solution in those moments. You're just doing damage control at that point. Sure, of course. Strike when the iron is cold. That's a great, great way of putting it. And I've never heard it before. So that's a, that's a, that's another one that will stick with me. I have sneaking suspicion. Um, and then again, some of your behavioral suggestions are also really, really good. Which one do you not get to talk about? <laughs> well, um, so I mean, I think. That if people understood that asking for help looks like not just asking for emotional help, that's actually um, uh, a reframe of of perspective. It's not one of the behavioral strategies, but I think it applies to behavioral strategies because if we're talking about the behavior of asking for help, being able to understand that so often we don't ask for help because we think of my of help in this myopic one-dimensional way which is asking for help means being emotionally vulnerable and having to tell someone something that feels private or scary to acknowledge an emotional help is one version of help i identify six in the book there are many more um and so other versions of help include informational help Right. So if you, if you just started a business and you are really stressed out with the mechanics of filing your taxes under, you know, this, a new PLLC, as opposed to the way you've always filed your taxes in life, you are stressed and you need help and understanding, wait a minute, I don't need necessarily a therapy session about this. I need to talk to an accountant and ask them two specific questions. I need informational help. And so just being able to organize the kind of help you need and create buckets in your mind, there's tangible help, there's physical help, there's financial help, there's emotional help, there's informational help, and there's community help. And again, that's just the intro class, right? There are all different kinds of help. And so asking for help doesn't have to look like bearing your soul to somebody, you know? I, I'm thinking, laughing to myself about uh, this past weekend. I, I'm short. I'm like five three, and I yeah. am too. Oh, <laughs> and I was at the grocery store, and the thing I wanted, creme fraiche, was way at the top, and I was standing there and trying to hold on. And I thought, I'm just not going to ask for help. And I knocked the whole 
the shelf off. <laughs> it all came tumbling down. And oh, you know, oh God, why didn't I just ask for help? So. Yeah, I know. There are so many moments where we don't ask for help for no good reason. Um, and then there are other moments when we don't ask for help for reasons that we think are good, but other people, you know, they, I was just talking about this to a friend where it's like, you don't ask for help because you think you're burdening someone mm -hmm. when actually asking for help is an invitation to connect and let people show up for you. And it also gives other people license to ask for help from you. Love you to know? ask for help. They yeah. Be asked for help. It's like, oh, you see me as someone that can help you. That's very flattering to me. Right. So, a lot of people do. So, um, well, the the book's title is, again, The Perfectionist's Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power by Catherine Morgan Schaffler. And I'm also curious, and I saw that one of your certifications was from the Association for Spirituality and Psychotherapy in New York. And but your afterward is very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I put that in in the last second because I was scared to put it in because I was like, it 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 has God in it. Yeah, it has God, God. language. <laughs> and uh, I was really raised not not religiously, and so to me, but I've always believed in God. Mm -hmm. Um, and it felt like a really intellectual book. And it also felt incomplete without that afterwards. So I just snuck it in there. I, <laughs> yeah. I thought, wow, what is this is really revealing another part of her. Yeah. So it was, um, and the way you feel about that kind of um, connection, how you feel about connection. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you where that came from. I remember being in my apartment before I even had a book proposal and just having a ton of um, index cards because I'm old school and I like to write stuff on index cards and lay them out to organize my thoughts. And I was like, what is this book going to be about? What is it not going to be about? How am I going to structure it? And I just had that, you know, I call it in the afterward a waking dream. I was sitting there and I just saw what I wrote in the afterward. And it was just like a 10 second thing. And I, and I was like, that is the spine of the book. Hmm. And at, at, when I finished the book, something about it didn't feel complete. And it was not including that little, you know, half a page afterward. And then I put it in and I felt such a piece uh, in heart and mind. And I really love that part too. So thank you for, for sharing course. that. Well, if uh, for self-work listeners who are going to actually pick this book up, which I would highly recommend, I'm not going to spoil it by reading it because I think it's just very, oh gosh, it, it evoked curiosity, it evoked uh, gentleness. Um, I don't know. It was just very, it was very interesting that you would, and I, I felt like you were letting us in a little bit to who you are and and what makes you tick. So that's, that was really a beautiful thing to write. Mm, thank you. Anything else that you would like for uh, us to hear about you or about your work? Well, uh, the book is a conversation starter and I could, you know, I think we all could talk about this in so many different directions and ways. And I continue the conversation on my site which is katherinemorganshaffler.com. And you can find me on Instagram at katherinemorganshaffler.com. 
And um, and I just want to thank you for having me on. You're this so has welcome. been such a thoughtful conversation. And I also want to thank you. I have your book here. Oh. And I want to <laughs> I want to thank you for laying the groundwork. You know, you and so many other practitioners, you know, Dr. Brene Brown comes to mind, Flett and Hewitt, obviously, you know, all these people that really cemented how perfectionism can go wrong Mm -hmm. and how much we need to be mindful of that and understand that we need bumper lanes on this thing Mm -hmm. or else we are going to crash. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the crash for perfectionism is very serious. And I talk about those serious risks in the book. And the reason that I was able to write a book about a sort of um, broader perspective was because the you know, part about how maladaptive perfectionism can go wrong was so clearly laid out. And so I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And it gave me license to really explore. And um, I never get a chance to tell the people who wrote books. I mean, isn't that the best part of being an author is that you get to talk to other people who yes. write other authors right. and, and about be like, being a podcast host as well. So. Yeah. Right. But man, being a podcast host looks so hard to me. It look, I mean, it looks easy on the surface, but just by being on all these podcasts, even just as a guest, I'm like, God, the level of technology <laughs> alone. <laughs> well, that's when you thank God for your team and your audio engineer. And mm-hmm. Thank you, Catherine. So very, very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to Catherine for a wonderful interview. I'm so appreciative of her work and the fact that she also actually in the beginnings of the book does talk about how perfectionism can be destructive. So we're really more on the same page than I initially thought. Thanks for the reviews you're leaving for self-work. Wherever you listen, keep them coming. Thank you for your support and for being here today. And please take very good care of yourself, your family, and your community. Of course, our hearts are broken by what has happened in Hawaii. And so if you know someone there, or if your life is affected by that tragic wildfire, please know that we are helping and we want to help. And I urge everybody listening, give whatever you can to the American Red Cross or the organization of your choice to help out these Hawaiians who have lost everything. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.